Let's go off on a tangent. It's This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. The immortal floppy. The entire history of the PC. And a NES portable. All this and more coming up on today's show. It's This Week in Retro. Up to date news for out of date tech. Hello, everyone. Hello. <laughs> um, a few weeks ago, Neil asked who you feel we should have on as a guest. And lots of people suggested Shelby, today's guest. And little did they know that I'd actually already asked him if he was up for it a few months ago. And he said, well, I think it's obvious he said yes. Um, <laughs> Tech Tangents is one of my favorite YouTube channels. Shelby loves his old DOS era technology and he goes super, super deep into things. Um, like four floppy drives and like the buying multiple scanners. Um, but there's a, a little bit of a, a, a similar journey that you had to Neil. Most of our listeners will know that Neil's landlord kicked him out to build <laughs> flats in Cave Cave Mark Three. Was that? That was Cave Mark Three. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cave Mark Three. Neil was booted out to build flats, and he was concerned. I think is the is the word to to use. Concerned about it, but he landed on his feet when Richard offered him the um, the chance to come to the mill. In fact, if you listen to the Retro Hour podcast, you'll hear that story being told. Uh, and it worked out really well from, well, Shelby, you had a, I think you had a similar story, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually doing all of my YouTube stuff at home and uh, I'd been in a leased house for 12 years. And uh, wow. when the lockdown stuff happened, the landlord saw dollar signs and all the realty stuff just went sky <laughs> high and booted me out uh, with, 30 days notice oh. so i had to move everything i owned both somewhere else and uh find somewhere to continue doing videos because it was uh everything was sky high pricing so getting enough space to do it was going to be a problem but uh yeah the stars all aligned to make getting the office that i'm in right now uh, a possibility and i just feel so incredibly fortunate that it worked out the way that it did yeah because you're in a space <clears throat> I think it's former or currently commercial space or office space type thing, but you've ended up in a, a, a what to me looks like, um, I'm sure you've got it filled now um, <laughs> with big box games, but it, it looks like a, a good size space. So you've kind of fallen on your feet there again. It's worked out for you in the long run. Yeah, it's about 900 square feet and it's actual office space. Uh, mm. It to traditionally like different rooms where you'd have people desks set up and that kind of thing. And uh, I got about four different rooms in here, and most of it's just become storage. But uh, <laughs> the one room right here is where everything usually happens uh, because it's a very long room, which makes it really easy to get uh, good camera angles for stuff, which is just mm. great. I didn't have that before when I was filming at home at all, and it's really Cheeky changed table. how I can film. Has it has it made you work more efficiently? Would you say your your whole workflow in creating videos does it work, or did you have a similar kind of setup in your previous home? Well, I I don't edit here, so right. when when I'm in the middle of editing and there's something that's just not quite right, it's very <laughs> frustrating not just be able to walk over, turn on the camera, and get the shot that I need or something like that. So having to more rigidly plan out how things are produced is 
not my favorite way to work. I like to work a little bit looser. So it's kind of railroaded me into something a little more uh, strict, which I'm not the biggest fan of. Uh, yeah, so. uh, we've definitely had a similar journey because I do my editing at home and it's a 30 minute drive over to the cave space. So um, my, my justification for that was so that I would actually spend some time at home. Otherwise, I would be there the whole time filming and editing. So I, I spend a bit more time at home. But yeah, it's immensely frustrating when you just need that tiny bit of B-roll to finish the video. Yeah, I feel your pain. Oh, yeah. But you've also done you've also done something else that that, that I thought was really interesting, um, and I, I'm not sure if people will know about it because I don't think the YouTube audio is ne audience is necessarily the same as the Twitch audience. You've started streaming loads and loads on Twitch. I think you record most of your most of your YouTube videos. You're broadcasting what you're doing on Twitch while you're making up the video that way. Well, it's mixed. Sometimes I am doing that, and sometimes uh, it's different content entirely. And then I'm actually starting a new workflow process right now where I'm trying to work on like really long-term projects while I'm live, uh, and then I'll reincorporate them later into YouTube videos. But yeah, uh, adding Twitch streaming into what I normally do has been really nice overall. So I've been yeah. enjoying that. Yeah, I, I thought that was quite interesting. I've seen, I've watched you on it doing uh, your cataloging of your big box games, for example. Really interesting. Mm. Neil, how's your week been? Well, on on the topic of big box games, uh, for those who watch the video, um, you're probably seeing me. Where does Duncan put me? Because I record in front of a green screen and he puts me somewhere in the cave, doesn't he, in the final video. But I'm sat here looking at Dave sat in front of a... a um, uh, Shelves and shelves of big box games. Shelby sat in front of his big box game. So just a, a quick request to Duncan. Can you put me in front of a better collection than those two, please? Just, <laughs> just to help my ego along a little bit. Um, no, my, no fair. Mine are all in the hallway, so I don't have the majority of them behind me. <laughs> um, my week's been good. Thank you for asking, Dave. Um, I have been moonlighting over on the Retro Hour this week. They very kindly invited me on, um, to which I said, well, why don't you get Alex from the Arcade Archive and Rich from Hebron as well, and we can talk as the collective. And we had a really nice chat about the story from the Landlord story that you mentioned through to meeting Richard, finding the space and getting to the point where we've got these two museums. And and now we'll probably talk about this at the end of today's show, um, potentially a retro repair service, which Richard is looking at setting up. So um, it, it was really nice just to review and go over that and um, share that story with the other guys. So that was good. Hopefully you'll forgive me for the moonlighting, but we have had Ravi on and we have We've had Dan on as well, haven't we? Yeah, we've had Dan on. Yeah. We've not had Joe on yet. We've not had Joe. Not had Joe on, so we'll have to get Joe on the Did show. Did you invite him? Point. No, I haven't invited him. Um, you should have done it. Yeah. It's much more difficult to say no when you're doing it on there. He's well, never going to say no. I didn't invite Joe specifically, but I, I gave them an open invite if they ever want to come and record the Retro Hour live at the cave right. or anything like that. Oh, that's The, the door good. is open to, in front of an, a studio audience. So. Do you not lock it? <laughs> Dave, shut up. <laughs> um, other things I've been up to this week, I've been ordering all the all the wood for the next area of the cave, for the lab area that we're building. So CLS to build the walls, the cladding, the furniture, all of that stuff. So that is on its way, and there'll be a video series on that too. Um, and you mentioned Shelby on Twitch, but I think you've been doing some Twitch stuff, haven't you, Dave? Yeah, I've, I've, been, um, I've been trying to... Uh, 
go through Star Trek on Twitch uh, on Mondays with uh, Happy Coding ZX. I'm sure Duncan will put a link in. Um, it gets me playing games and playing adventure games, which I love, but gets me playing them honestly rather than um, the way I do it. I feel as if I rush myself through them uh, yeah. these days. Um, so it's three of us doing it, uh, happy coding. Uh, Alan does the controls, and the three of us talk our way through it. Three of us are blind going through this Star Trek 25th anniversary, but I'm really enjoying that. And I'm also trying to do the Arcade Archives Ghosts and Goblins Challenge oh. as another way, another way to force myself to play games because I just don't play enough games. I just don't. It's always something you put off until later, and then you feel guilty about doing it. So I'm going to do that. He has told us that Dip Switch can be an easy. Which it's such a hard game, even on easy. Trading standards should be, if that's if that's easy, trading standards should be called in. So hard. Yeah. Um, at the Arcade Archive yesterday, there was an event I was at, and there's a guy who we we watched him play Ghosts and Goblins all the way to the last level. He killed the final boss, and it said, um, there was a message that came up and said, well, this doesn't really count because you weren't carrying the shield. You have to have the shield to kill him. So it sent him back to the start of that level. He got all the way to the final boss, and he didn't finish him off. But it was it was like we were back in the 80s because there was this kid who was really good at the game. And over time, we all started to crowd around the cabinet and watch him and cheer him on and will him on. It was just a really nice experience to see that, even more so on such a hard game because nobody else in the room could get, could touch him, could get anywhere near that. Um, it's like a Five times game. the score of other people, I think. Brutal it's incredible. Game. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you got any housekeeping, Dave? If so, I can play a jingle for you. Yes, there is. Play a jingle. It's your favourite part of the show. Is there any housekeeping to be had? I'd like to welcome two new patrons. Geek Power and Simon, which sounds like a, a BBC kids show, Geek Power and Simon. <laughs> Thank you for joining up. If you'd like to join in, you can go to www.patreon.com slash thisweekinretro and sign up. We, we do appreciate it. Of course, it's not necessary. We also appreciate if you could review on your podcast application of choice to let people know that you like the podcast and you should listen to it. Winamp. <laughs> Winamp, yes, yes. Reviewers on Winamp uh, and Real Player, um, this week in Retro.rm. We mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, it was Neil's story, the ST Amiga, the Flame Wars book, and it was successfully funded. Um, came through on the last day. It came about 110%, I think. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and it sparked some really interesting and lively discussion. Most of it was informative. Um We've no connection to the books. So we're not promoting it, and we're not able to promise in the final quality and the product and so on. But I backed it, so I believe in it. I'm looking forward to it. And surprisingly, at least to me, even though it's a kind of a Kickstarter thing, although it's not in Kickstarter, in, I think Indiegogo is it. I can't remember. It was Indiegogo. on both. It was on both. Was it? Yeah. Was it in Kickstarter as well? I yeah. Didn't know that. Um, you can still back it. You can still buy the book now and, and, and add to the total. Um, so one thing I want to explain to Amiga fans is the universal art Atari ST experience on YouTube, etc. You mention the Atari ST and a kettle of vultures appear to shriek, <laughs> Amiga is better, Amiga is better. So please just let us exist without the constant bullying. You had that, Shelby, didn't you? Oh, yeah, constantly. Like, any time I mention it, it's, it's incessant. 
Well, on that topic, um, I want to thank 42Nobody42 and also Linux Jedi for um, uh, submitting what I think is the most upvoted post ever on the subreddit. I'm going to have to describe a meme here, which doesn't really work, but um, Duncan will maybe put it up on the screen for those on video. Um, It's a cartoon in which it says Atari ST in every section, and it's the athlete, first of all, getting the medal put around his neck, the gold medal, then biting the medal, then grabbing the girl bending her backwards and kissing her, giving the bird to everyone else, then uh, shaking his champagne and spraying it in his face before the camera zooms out and shows that the Atari ST is celebrating down there in seventh place with the Amiga in first place. Um, yeah. So where's the Apple II in this? Where's the Apple II? How come the Amiga's ahead of the PC? Where's the Archimedes, Neil? Is the Archimedes better than the Amiga? The Archimedes is the um, the umpire, the judge. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's why he's not uh-huh. there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on from that. Um and finally a story we won't cover is from the Stroud Times, <laughs> where some questionable individual is looking for old TVs to be donated. Now, I know that Neil the Cave is in Stroud, so I thought maybe you might have heard of this questionable individual, this dodgy geezer. Oh, and who, who are you going that? to give him any TVs? Who would go in a local paper and say, Give us your TVs? I, I don't know who would do that. Um, we've had a few. Uh, we've had a few emails in so far, offering us some nice black and white sets. So we'll see what else comes in. To be clear, Neil is the dodgy user. Neil dodgy has geezer. asked for TVs. <laughs> Let's Someone go into tried our to first sell story, you one. Dave. <laughs> the first tech tangents video that I think I ever watched was suggested to me by my friend Chrissy, and it was on connecting four floppy disk drives to a PC. I thought the limit was two, but no, the limit is actually four. In fact, it may not even be four, but the, it started off a natural, I, I'm out of my depth already here, uh, it was four. Um, <laughs> Why don't you ask no. Shelby? <laughs> is it four? <laughs> well, actually, it's eight. <laughs> there you go. Ah, so There, the limit's eight. Yeah. So I said the first time. Um <laughs> Now, I, I do love discs. I love the, the experience of using discs, the, the physical media. I've gone back to using vinyl records and CDs for the same reasons. And by the sounds of it, discs will never die. A while ago, we had a story on Japan's war on the floppy disk. But today's story is thanks to Starcade 2084. And it's talking. About, it starts talking about a, a cowboy, Mark uh, Nakes, We've probably pronounced that wrong. Who travels around rodeos, uh, <laughs> doing this custom? Where's this going? Do, doing. <laughs> bear with me. Doing custom embroidery on jackets and vests. Wow. He bought an eighteen thousand dollars machine second hand that was made in two thousand and four, and it uses discs. And it came with eight discs. And when he got down to only four left working, he started to worry. Um, it then talks about David uh, Nizashvili. You've chosen all the great names today. Who, <laughs> who does maintenance, I do apologise, who does maintenance in Tbilisi in Georgia, not Georgia, the USA, uh, on um, Boeing four, uh, 747s made in 1987, and they use floppies to apply critical updates. Um they also mention a, a Texas-based company called PLR that make emulators. Uh, now, we're almost certainly, to, it doesn't say they're Gotex, but we're almost certainly talking about Gotex here. And it says that CNC and embroidery manufacturers are the biggest customers. And of course, 
there's no reason why a working CNC machine that uses a floppy drive to hold the data, there's no reason at all why you have to replace that because floppy drives are, the floppy drive shouldn't be the tail that wags the dog there. So they will con continue to be necessary for a while, although perhaps it will be through an emulator with a USB stick. Uh, floppies stopped being made in 2010 although they're still easy to get to get hold of. And the, the article does go on to talk to Tom Persky from floppydisk.com, who I've mentioned before in previous stories and talked to him as well. And he thinks at 73 years old, he'll do another five years and then stop, and that'll be the end of it. He thinks no one else will pick up the torch from him. Uh, and not everybody's a fan of the floppy disk. Florian Kramer is a filmmaker who in 2009 shrunk every Oscar-nominated film into an animated GIF, or GIF if you like, uh, on two floppy disks. And he says it's a toxic medium and as plastic waste should no longer exist. So I have to hope that the quote is from 2009 before they stop being made. And then he might have had a point about it. Um, now, Shelby, I know you like discs and I don't think you're a cowboy, despite coming from the wild, wild west in the USA. Do you think they'll ever die? Well, yeah, because all the media is going to die eventually. Um, but Interestingly, I think floppy disks may outlive CDs because of just how the materials decompose. I don't think there's any like shelf lives given on floppy disks, but uh, LTO, similar magnetic storage media, is rated for 40 years. So these, I mean, some of them are going to be getting on to that point now as it is, but they might actually last a good while as far as like material stuff. But uh, yeah, they're definitely going to get phased out. The, the embroidery thing's actually kind of interesting to me. So this is embroidery software, and that <laughs> stuff is no joke uh, when it comes to how restrictive it is. This has a USB security dongle in it that you have to have plugged into the computer to get it to work. And they all use like crazy proprietary formats. It's, it is a wild thing. So that the guy with the machine that has the like few disks left, I kind of feel for him because that stuff is hard to keep going. Neil, what about the cave? I don't think it's workable for you to use disks and all the machines you've got out all the time. But what do you have for visitors to interact with? Oh, yeah, all sorts. I, I, I just came out in a bit of a cold sweat there because Shelby mentioned LTO, and I used to be a backup administrator. So it just oh, <laughs> gave me the shivers. Um, and I had to check. They're up to LTO 9 now, so those tapes can hold a 45 terabyte capacity. Um, they just keep on big, getting bigger and bigger. But... Yeah, good, reliable medium. So, yeah, in the cave itself, um, floppies paid, played a significant role just yesterday because we've got the Sharp X68000, very popular machine for people to come and try out because it's quite rare on these shores. Got it hooked up to um, an SD card hard drive solution. And for some reason, it started throwing up errors yesterday. Uh, but thankfully, I was able to grab the five and a quarter inch floppies that it runs on stick a game in and it started playing games now admittedly the first game i put in there gave a crc error so that floppy was not happy but the next one i put in was new zealand story and that loaded right up so people could at least carry on on playing on that so floppy saved the day for me yesterday um interesting as well shelby says that he thinks floppies will outlive cds in a, in a similar vein just last year i was reading that vinyl records outsold cds so, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to be buying floppies for a warmer audio listening experience. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there are obviously use cases there. Um, CNCs are a very good example because I used to support CNC machines. Um, so, yeah, as Dave says, why why force the upgrade? If it works, it works. But that that force might come from a lack of floppy disks. 
And you also mentioned floppy disks, floppy disk singular.com. Um, and I was reading up on that just yesterday as well. And the guy there, what's the name of the chap who runs it, Dave? You know, Tom, Tom, Tom talks about these stories where he'll pick up half a million floppy disks at a time or 50,000 floppy disks at a time for people's garages and things. But these are still 20 year old at best boxes of disks. They're new old stock, aren't they? Um, yeah. Or, or 13 year old, you know, in a best case scenario. So yeah, floppy disks are, um, are certainly disappearing. Um, in the cave, also, uh, we use GoTex, we use SD card solutions for hard drives, and I do like floppy disks as as a symbol, as a physical thing, as a you know a throwback yeah. to the past to show kids, especially. Well, Go on. Yeah, even if you watch sci-fi shows set in the future, they still use things that are essentially a floppy disk. They'll hold up the memory chip, the memory <laughs> crystal, the the engram, whatever it is. They'll hold it up, and essentially, what they're holding up is what we recognise as a floppy disk. Wow. Are there clouds in space? The cloud is someone else's computer. <laughs> um, I'm sure Star Trek has a subspace cloud. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, I think floppy disks today have the same problem that they had back in the day, which is speed. Um, so at the point when we upgraded from cassettes, Dave and I had our Amstrad CPC and we loaded from cassettes and it was really slow. But that's Hang what on. we knew. Hang go on. on. I had the 6128. Oh, you had you floppies. Had the 464. You had discs, right. I, well, had, I had a cassette. disc from the get-go. <laughs> I had a cassette. So when I upgraded to disc, it would have been the Amiga. Brilliant. Floppy yeah. disks were suddenly very quick, but then hard disks came into my life, and then floppy mm. disks are slow Amazing. again. Um, yeah. And that is that that became the slowest link in the system and, and the frustration, and it's just the same today. We love compact flash solutions and SD card solutions. And I love GoTex, but GoTex run at the same speed as the original floppy drive. It doesn't speed things up. So that frustration remains. So in the modern day, I like the experience of installing something once from a floppy disk onto an SD card solution, going through that installer screen and choosing my sound card and all that. But beyond that, it's very frustrating using an Amiga, for example, and loading from floppy disk every time. So it's very much a love-hate relationship for me. Same as it ever was, really. Yeah, I, I think there's a line. I think if I'm using an Amstrad or a Commodore 64, I like to use disks. If I'm using my old PCs, I'm delighted to install from from floppy disks. If I'm using the ST or Amiga, I think if it's a game that you load from disk and it's a single disk or maybe even two disks at a stretch, it's okay. But when you start to get to the Amiga games like Monkey Island and so on, where you're swapping and swapping, no hard disks are the way for that. Uh, but I don't think discs will die in my lifetime. I think um, people talk about them as being very unreliable, but it, it's down to how they're stored. And properly stored ones show no sign of giving up on their own. Um, Neil? I was just interested in Shelby's earlier experiences with, with media. Did you ever have a machine with a cassette deck, uh, Shelby? What did you start with? Well, I, I actually started a little later with a Pentium 2 era type thing. Oh, okay. So, okay yeah. I think he's younger than us, Neil. I think he's a lot younger <laughs> yeah. than us. Yeah, I'll, maybe a little. Um, <laughs> but I, I did actually, I, I had a bit of experience with floppy disks in, instead. Um, sure. I, yeah. So I, I've i never really disliked the format, though, uh, because I never went from cassette to that and experienced the speed boost from that perspective. But 
to me, it was always the liberation of the files being transferable with floppy disks, and I, I appreciated that fact. The size yeah. capacity for me was more the issue when that was happening, and zip disks blew my mind when those came out. So Yeah. Well, you would have landed then right in the, the multimedia era when actually floppy mm. disks were the non-talky versions, the less exciting versions of, of many games, and you'd have to buy your CD to get the talky versions, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also used a CDRW to transfer files around in the similar vein to floppy disks. That blew my mind that it was yeah. like a floppy, but so much capacity. I don't think we'll give up on using them as enthusiasts because there were such gargantuan volumes of them in circulation, massive amounts of them in circulation, that you can still get hold of them. Um, Tom Persky said, there isn't anyone with half a million disks but there are half a million people with a 10-pack. Neil, are you going to disagree? Do you think he's wrong? I'm not going to disagree, but I, I'm just going to say to the quote earlier when somebody said that floppy disks are, are, are just plastic waste, um, do what I did. If, you, if, if, if you're that desperate, before you put them in landfill, tile a wall with them because a, a, a wall tiled with floppy disks, as, as my kitchen is in the cave, just looks fantastic. So, I understand that you tested all the discs first, and it was only the working ones that you used. It was the only the, the landfill. It was only the Atari ST ones. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I find the idea that they're plastic waste to be quite a overgeneralization because I mean they had their place. It, they had to exist yeah. at a certain point, yeah. and the production would have yeah. continued. I mean, maybe those yeah. clear ones that don't have enough of the uh, filter media in those, those were kind of plastic waste to begin with because they just sucked. Yeah. That, yeah. You know. And by the time that, 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 that guy did it in 2009, almost every floppy disk had already been manufactured, so it was already waste. I mean, what are you going to do with them? Yeah. Um, anyway, floppy disks, they're great. We are sponsored by Pixel Addict Magazine. Pixel Addict Magazine is a monthly um, lifestyle retro magazine, which is available on their website, Neil. Oh, uh, pixel.addict.media. Well done. There's a new issue out. It's now in the shops. It's been in the shops for a week the time you're reading this. Um, I've had a read of it. Uh, I haven't had a proper read through. I've had a, a glance through like I did last week. I've not had any time this week. What's the story? What's the last dinosaurs. story? It was the, the dinosaur with the, the silicone <laughs> graphics, isn't it? The silicone dinosaurs, graphics. Dinosaurs, yeah. You probably haven't got past the cover yet, Dave, looking at the dinosaurs. The cover's great. No, the cover's SGI great. Logo. Uh, there's also mention of iOmega zip drives on the cover, which will please uh, Shelby. Um, and Archer McLean memories. So a nice tribute to Archer McLean in there. Um, yeah. yeah, he's an important, important British developer. You can get this magazine by going to their website and buying a PDF copy, or you can subscribe for a physical copy, or you can find it in the newsagent, mostly worldwide. Now, as is tradition with our guests, Shelby, this is just a yes or no answer. Can you confirm that P Pixel Addict exists? First hand, no. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Controversy. Yes or no answer. Show. You cannot confirm it. Cannot Clint could confirm it existed. It's a step back, I think. I don't, wow. I don't, I don't know. Uh, this is my first time hearing of it, but I'm not big into the retro scene. I would say. Fair enough. It could go on your, it could go on your shelves along with the Bite magazines. Yeah, it could. I'm just going <laughs> to stick my neck out here, uh, guys, and say that Pixel Addict does exist. I hope that's not <laughs> too 
controversial for you, but you can find it at pixel.addict.media in a physical and a digital format. Thank you for sponsoring us. I I'll definitely have to check it out, much. though. Yeah. Finger guns. Let's end with finger guns. <laughs> so in our next story, we're going to cover the complete history of the PC. Yeah, might be a bit of a stretch, but it's prompted by the submission of our listener, I Am Amiga, who I already love, um, who links us to a free book available in PDF format called Retrograde. And it says it's the ultimate guide to pre-millennial PC hardware. And that sounds right up our street. So this is written by the makers of Custom PC Magazine with a foreword by Ben Hardwich, who, despite being on the cutting edge of PC tech, benchmarking the fastest machines available month on month, describes his fondness for retro software and computers in the foreword. There then follows 100 or so pages on the history of the PC. There's a build guide for a retro PC. And there are various milestone chapters in there about different graphics cards, um, processor development, software, things like that. So this being, um, I, I would call it a magazine rather than a book, as I am Amiga called it. Um, being a magazine, it means you've got a mixture of lovely articles on 286 CPUs, for example, uh, interspersed with an advert for a 27-inch um, 165 hertz flat screen monitor, which <laughs> is exactly what you want to pay your 286 up with. Um, but it, it's a nice um, it's a nice refresher of a lot of your favorite PC technologies and um, it could even fill in some blanks in your knowledge in some of this technology. So it's worth a read through. The build guide in this um, magazine targets a Pentium 166 MMX system with 32 megs of RAM. It's got a bog standard Cirrus Logic 2D graphics card in there. A compact flash um, hard drive is their modern twist, but I think pretty much everyone uses compact flash hard drives these days on their retro machines. And a Sound Blaster 16 card. They do show an original Sound Blaster 16 card rather than a perhaps more readily available alternative, but that's what they're recommending. Um, and it does, of course, have to explain to the youngsters how to configure such things as the master and slave drive jumpers on hard disks and configuring your config and your auto-exec um, bat files. But as far as I'm concerned, that's all part of the fun of it. It also talks you through installing FreeDOS, and it tells you how to use a slowdown tool to enjoy games that aren't cycle aware. So they, those are the games that just run as fast as they can. And the example used in the magazine is Origins at Martian Dreams. So often it's Origin games that come up with this problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is an Ultima spinoff. I mean, we like to mention Ultima on the podcast. Yes, yes. Ultima's great. <laughs> Um, for those who don't want to build a whole PC, there's also a guide to the Pi and getting DOS emulation running on the Pi. So um, I would encourage you to have a read. There's a link in the show notes. And I have to admit that beyond a certain era of PC gaming, it brings out a certain snobbishness in me, believe it or not, me being snobby. Um, and I'm not proud of it. Uh, and that era is the pre-VGA PC era. I think most PC games, and there are some exceptions, like Loom, for example, but I think most PC games look bad pre-VGA, especially for the price that the machines commanded at the time. Now, granted, these machines were not built as games machines, so things like color palettes were built around the suitability of business applications and not shoot-em-ups. Um, and, and I know that 
nostalgia is a very personal thing for anyone, so I'm not knocking anyone else who does pine for the days of magenta, but am I alone in this? <laughs> am I alone in this? Dave, let's start with you. Are you a pre-VGA PC snob? Ooh, I'm in two minds. Um, I can't disagree with what you said. I mean, if you wanted a games platform and you bought an EGA PC, then you've made a mistake. Uh, <laughs> however, there are some great EGA games. I- I'm sitting behind in front. In some front. games there. You're, you're not behind some... your games, Dave. You're in yeah, front there, of There are games. games behind me. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> yeah. um, there are ga- games behind me, and um, there are some great EGA era games there, but they were also available in other systems. Uh, I think PC gaming was a case of, well, you've already got it in your house for the business. Why don't you play some games on it as well? I think that was the story there. So I think VGA is where it's at with PCs. Um VGA systems can actually play the EGA games fine, so you don't even need to get the EGA system to do it. Um, but VGA is where it started to get super interesting for the PC. I've said before, and I will die on this hill, that the best period ever for, for gaming is DOS gaming in the early to mid-90s. So many good games will come out, so many games that are still being refreshed and redone now. The roots go back there, in fact, further to Apple II. Um, and the... The, the 166 MMX, the Pentium MMX, is a fantastic DOS gaming CPU, and I want to explain why it's so good. The platform is cheap to get hold of. 486-era stuff is very expensive to get hold of, and it needs a lot of expensive components. Socket 7 isn't. Um, so a 166 MMX is cheap to get hold of. You can put a PCI, a simple, cheap uh, PCI graphics card, or, or even an AGP graphics card if you get the right board, as well as something, and I think they're wrong to recommend a Sound Blaster 16. I would recommend you don't look at a Sound Blaster 16. There are lots of bugs in those, and you're better off with something like a Yamaha Yamaha Isa sound card, a YM18 or 19. They're about 20 or 30 quid or $30 in the US. Easy to get hold of. They're cheap, and they're better than the Sound Blaster 16 for compatibility and bugs and so on. Um, so get that, but you can get a, a really inexpensive machine and the important thing is that you can use a utility called setmul which changes various different caches and multipliers and you can slow it right down until it's about the speed of a 386 dx which means that your socket 7 covers about a decade of games a decade of great fantastic games so you can skip all the weirdness with 486 cards and have a cheap effective um effectively 386 486 and pentium pentium mx machine for not very much money um now the book which i've only skimmed through because I, I haven't had time to read it all uh, it mentions the the slowdown utility in freedos and i'm not familiar with it so i can't see if it's any good i know that we used slow-mo back in the day or most most better most most slow sorry most slow and it wasn't quite as good because I think it burnt CPU cycles to get slow things down rather than actually slowing the CPU down. So I don't know if, if that's good, but go get your, your DOS gaming going. Go get it going. Yeah, it was stressing the CPU with excess cycles rather than um, yeah. crippling it in the way that you described. With What was the other utility you, you mentioned? Uh, Setmul, S-E-T-M-U-L. It's, it's, a, it's a modern utility. Fantastic. You get it in Vogons. Um, and, you know, just an example of some of the graphics I was skimming through here. It shows off Xenon 2 Mega Blast in high-resolution monochrome mode. Um, not really ticking my boxes there. Um, and it talks about composite mode and um, squeezing more colors out of the composite port 
on a CGA card uh, in games like King's Quest and, and hacks like that. Um, yeah, it, it's a world that I'm not super familiar with, that pre-VGA era of PCs, certainly the gaming, because um, you were on your Atari, Dave. I was on my Amiga, and it, it, they weren't made as games machines, but they just had palettes that lent themselves a little bit more nicely to uh, yeah. 2D video games at the time. Uh, and the cost, the cost was part of it as well. The, yeah. the, the, you got the complete thing for the, with the ST or the other, and you go, where's a PC? To buy it, if, if you had it in the house already, that was fine. But yeah. to buy a PC for games until maybe 1992, 93, 94, when its price started going really down, that's when it uh, became feasible. Oh, yeah, and there must be a huge number of um, adults out there now whose nostalgia is based around being a kid and sneaking a game onto their dad's business PC in the back office or something like that and, and discovering gaming that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's your childhood to uh, enjoy. Um, Shelby, have you had a read of this magazine and um, what's your relationship with the, the PC like? Do you have any love for the pre-VGA era? So I, I did actually poke through the magazine a little bit and uh, I appreciated them covering the voltage settings on the Socket 7 stuff because to me that's one of the more daunting things is when you go into it with like an AMD chip being put onto a board that formerly had like an MMX or something, you got to make sure that you get all that right so you don't roast something. Uh, so I was glad that they did mention that. But uh, I think that the PC gets maybe a bad rap for its pre-VGA stuff, though I will agree with Dave, uh, in that early 90s is probably the best era ever. And I would even go so far as to say 1993 is the best year because you get Doom, Deal. you get SimCity 2000, mm -hmm. yeah. and there's plenty of other stuff then uh, too. So yeah, that's uh, that's golden era for me. But yeah. the PC definitely had some great games, and I'll even go as far back as to say CGA. Neil, do you agree? Can we, can we go all three of us say 1993 is where it peaked? 1993 it, is the year I got my 486 PC. So it was a very exciting year for PC gaming for me. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Yeah. That's a yes, isn't it? Yes. Sorry, Shelby. <laughs> no problem. Not going to get a complaint from me there. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's pretty good CGA games. Uh, I would say the PC had an uphill battle on that, and uh, they were good in spite of of the color palette, uh, but you get things like uh, Star Fox 2, or Star Fox 2, oh my gosh, Sky Fox 2. That's <laughs> um, a space game. Uh, Vet runs in CGA. It's a 3D game. Uh, and then I have a really good port of Pole Position uh, for the PC that runs on CGA. So there's some, there's some good stuff like that. I, I think the things like uh, the CGA composite mode kind of get blown out of proportion, that it wasn't that common back then, but... It, it had its points where it was good, but it I will admit it was more the exception than the rule. So, but yeah, it, it, the PC definitely came into its own with VGA where it finally did catch up <laughs> to the sure. um, yeah. ST and first the and then the Amiga. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it does go through to the 3DFX era and all the way up to the turn of the millennium. But on the VGA section, page 35 here, it says the very best of early VGA. And it shows Wing Commander, Wolfenstein 3D, Eye of the Beholder, Secret of Monkey Island, Dark Seed, and Deluxe Paint. And there's quite a lot of crossover there between the 16-bit era and the VGA era. But when it comes to things like Wing Commander, it's got the grunt to really you know, give you the frame rate that you need. And you've 
pretty much got a hard drive as standard by this point. So, you know, you're not waiting for all the disk loading times. Something like um, Eye of the Beholder, that was that was fine on the 16-bit machines, wasn't it, Dave? I know you're a fan of the old dungeon crawlers. So uh, you, you got it on the Amiga. In fact, the Amiga might even been the, the lead machine for Eye of the mm. Beholder, and it, um, it, it was better on PC, but it, it, it didn't make the game, if you know what I mean. You, didn't, you, you got a great experience on there, so that's a poor choice, as is Monkey Island. Monkey Island's a terrible choice to say VEGA is good. I mean, yeah. EGA Monkey Island is great. Yeah, I guess the stand-up then is is Wing Commander and Wolfenstein 3D there for pushing the uh, the PC era. Um, and then it goes into the 3DFX, um, and that's just a wonderful, wonderful era for me. Loved getting my first 3DFX card uh, and through to the GeForce uh, and beyond. Um, so we've talked about the retro build guide there. So, um, Dave, you seem to think that the P166 is perhaps the ideal retro build, or would you, would you tweak that so- a little bit? So the, the the Pentium MMX is the ideal build, uh, definitely a hundred percent. That's the the one to go for. Um, it's more versatile than a Pentium two or a Pentium three because it can go back easily. Um, but don't necessarily look at the one six six. The two hundred or the two three three would be slightly more versatile, and the prices are still rock bottom. You're talking just a tenner type thing for it for the CPU. So no reason at all not to mm. go for it. Shall we? Yeah, I, I definitely have to agree there. Uh, I have my tiny Pentium system that is both Windows 98 and DOS using a MMX 233 with an Aureal Vortex 2 and a Dream Blaster S2 uh, wavetable card. So it has, and a Voodoo 2. So it does everything from DOS with MIDI game sound and all the way up to 3DFX and Windows 98 all in one system. So yeah, definitely agree that the Pentium era like that is just the best to go for if you're going to go with one. Ten, 10 years 10 years in one machine 10 yeah. years of the best games ever so if you get the the higher end mmx cpu there you'll find that the cpu isn't crippling when you go into the voodoo games it's keeping a nice pace with the voodoo card <laughs> or is it a little bit too slow for you still shall we just a little bit there's some stuff where I'm, it's definitely cpu bound sure i'll, I'll run, okay. run some things i'm like ah this just doesn't quite do it but that's the whole story of PC ownership, isn't it? Compromise. There's always a compromise somewhere. Um, even if you throw money at it a week later, <laughs> something else is going to come along. So, yeah. Um, a, a, a quick poll for you all then um, on this P166 retro build in the magazine. If you had that, what's the first game you'd fire up on it? TIE Fighter. Yeah. Oh, man. 166. Uh... Although so TIE Fighter is the wrong era for it, but yeah, TIE Fighter. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's going to have game. to be something 3DFX. I'm going to go with Pod. Pod? Okay. Pod, nice. Planet of Death, the racing yeah. game. Yep, there we with go. With the Commodore 64 palette I sh- for the whole I game. See- the, the brown palette of Pod. Yeah. <laughs> I should maybe see, I should maybe see Hexen or should I, should I say Descent? Because TIE Fighter doesn't stress that at all. TIE Fighter is a 486 game. Could I run Redneck Rampage on a 166? I need to look at that. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. 1997, yeah? Yeah, yeah, no bother. Okay, I'll go with that. No bother. I used to Build love engine playing that. stretches pretty well. <laughs> Good, and then... Unless um, you go for high resolution. I did also uh, see in the magazine there's a section on floppy disks, Dave, just harking back to your yeah. story, and there is the line in the magazine, it took a long time for floppy disks to completely die out. 
So there you go. If custom PC says that floppies have died out, then I think that concludes your story nicely. No, Dave's shaking his head. Uh, but anyway, if you'd like to check this out, uh, this, this book slash guide slash magazine, it's available for the low, low price of free using the link in the show notes. And thank you to was it I am Omega for um for submitting this story. If you'd like to submit any stories for our consideration, head over to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. The Nintendo Entertainment System took the world by storm in the kind of mid to late 80s and it helped restore console gaming in the USA after a rough patch. I, I don't want to talk much about the the the, the, the so-called console crash in America because um, it's quite an emotive subject for some people, and I I don't know en- enough about it to, to, to be uh, to say too much about it. But my understanding is that things really fell away, and the NES came back at just the right time to be a console for it. And then the Game Boy that was ubiquitous at the end of the eighties and into the nineties. I'd often see people playing Tetris on the train on the way into work. Uh, train carriages see several people with those out. Um, but for all the, the Atari Lynx power, the Game Boy was simple, it was ergonomic, the screen was visible, if a bit muddy, and the battery life was good. Um, but it wasn't the only thing that might have come out. So thanks to a link from Happy Coding ZX, um, a former Capcom engineer decided to make a portable that played Nintendo carts. He formed BDL Enterprises in California where he made arcade test equipment and he saw an opportunity in the expanding console market. He made a product called the Turbo Blaster, which as I understand it is an auto-fire device for the NES. And Nintendo themselves allowed it to be licensed as an official Nintendo product. He then stripped down the guts of a NES and made a product called the Express in the same way that Richard stripped down a mister and made the the prototype portable mister uh which is the express is six by eight by two inches with a four inch color screen and built-in speakers he then built in a controller and added nes controller ports and supposedly 30 to 40 hours of battery life which i flat do not believe i don't believe back then you could <laughs> get that knowing what the other handhelds were like for batteries um however it had full compatibility with everything, of, of course, apart from Zapper games. Uh, they hoped to sell it at the same price as a Lynx, which is roughly twice the price of the Game Boy. But because it uses custom NES chips, and it, wasn't, it wouldn't make sense to buy a NES and then to, to shrink it down for each one, he needed to get the license from Nintendo, who were already in a relationship with his company. However, Nintendo declined. They said they wouldn't do it, there's no real reasons why given other than Nintendo say it doesn't fit into their long-term marketing plan. So they may be, they felt it would cannibalize sales of the, of the Game Boy, Game Boy or the NES itself. Personally, I think they're wrong. I think there's a market for people with the, the links or the Game Gear was a different market than the Game Boy. You might have people choosing between the two of them, but you, you, you would have people who perhaps would look at both. Um, so I think it's a shame that they didn't do it. Um, Shelby, were you a console gamer? Did you think you'd ever want a handheld NES? You know, uh, it's kind of funny. I, I was, I'm surprised there hasn't been one, even after that, because the NES on a stick stuff that came out for the bajillions of clones of them i'm surprised no one just slapped one in something that you could run off batteries although i do have to say being a lynx fan uh yes. i can see how that <laughs> nice. could 
absolutely <laughs> devour batteries. <laughs> but yeah, thirty yeah. to forty hours on a Lynx. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I would, I would have rocked a Nintendo Nomad. That's for sure, because uh, there was plenty of great stuff on there. But yeah, I am. I'm not surprised that Nintendo didn't do that because I think they were really trying to push the Nintendo seal and the authentic hardware that was certified uh, after. Well, he 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 got that on his on the the Game Blaster thing he made. Is it what Game Blaster? Is that what I called it? It was uh, da, 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 Turbo uh, Blaster. Yeah, that had the that had the Nintendo seal on it. They they liked his product that much that they got that. Yeah, I'm guessing that they were just a little apprehensive, though, was what it was, yeah. is that maybe yeah. the other thing was just a little bit of a stretch too far. And I could see maybe the cost having been so high if it was like a full NES, but in your pocket, because the the Lynx was very expensive, and that was probably its downfall, ultimately. So maybe they're just worried about that. Yeah, the the seal of the Nintendo seal of approval was very important in that post North American video game crash world because Nintendo swooped in and said, you know, after all of the awful versions of Pac Man and you know these third party games that appeared for the Atari twenty six hundred, we're going to keep a lid on this and we're going to make sure everything's done to a very high quality. So it wasn't long after that that we're talking about this period. So they would have been very nervous about letting quality slip. Um, although, as you said, Dave, they they were slightly proven in their Turbo Express um, product, but that's a very different deal to a handheld NES as, as a step up again, isn't it? In uh, and a chunk of Nintendo's um, IP. Um, the first handheld that I actually owned was a Game Boy Advance, um, and I think the reason for that is because I had access to all of those that came before it via friends. The Game Boy, I mean, so many people had a Game Boy. Um, the Lynx had a friend with a Lynx and used to play Blue Thunder and Chips Challenge on that. Um, the Game Gear, I, I tried them all. Uh, uh, the Game Gear I tried at release time, and, and even as a young, excited gamer, the flaws were very obvious in all of these, especially with battery life. That's the one that always comes up. In the case of the original Game Boy, the horrific blurring on the screen when you, when when games scrolled, such as Super Mario World. Um, I feel like Shelby's going to jump into the defense of the links at this point. Hit me. Game Gear, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I just have to remark on how great and horrible it was because I had the Game Gear at the time and everything for it. Uh, I had the rechargeable battery, the TV tuner, and the magnifier <laughs> attachment for the screen, which in theory was that any made good? it easier to see. Was it any good? Oh, I loved it. I loved the Game Gear. Yeah? But the, magna the magnifier no, no, thing the, the magnifier. made it dimmer. <laughs> it made it dimmer. <laughs> you know, the light was stretched out farther. Uh, the best thing it did was prevent the screen from getting hit with light from the side. But right. yeah, I, I loved my Game Gear experience, but it definitely has its flaws. And the two Game Gears that I now own are sitting over there, dead, waiting for new capacitors to get put in. So yeah, it's yeah. been a while. There you go. Magnify the flaws with the magnifier. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, yeah and this is it's all about compromise. You know, compromise had to exist in handhelds, but it was too much compromise for me until the Game Boy Advance. And, and I think I remember at the time of the Lynx, that was the perfect handheld for me. I loved the Lynx if I could afford an endless supply of batteries. You know, I love that console. I love the games on it. I love the sound that came out of it. If you load up APB on the links, my goodness, that tune will melt your face. It's such a <laughs> such a great noise that comes out of the machine. And 
its ability to rotate and zoom sprites. It had everything you could want in a handheld, but it was flawed um, by, even with a color screen, it wasn't a perfect screen. Um, my current links, I don't know if you've done anything with yours, Shelby, but I've got the wheel modded screen, which does help with battery life and it does make it a clearer screen. Have you modded yours at all or are you a purist with your links? So I have the Lynx 1 here, but I also have yeah. Lynx 2 at home, and they're both bone stock. Well, this one actually has been worked on a, a little bit uh, before I got it, so it has some flaws. I should potentially uh, look into modifying it. But no, I, bone stock, and I've, I've kind of always enjoyed it as is. I haven't really done much modding stuff like that before. Yeah, yeah the, the screens are great on the Lynx, the, the modern McWheel mod screens, um, but... If you if you're a purist, if if you want to experience it as you experienced it back in the day, there's nothing wrong with that at all either. Just not in direct sunlight. Um, the thirty to forty hour battery life uh, that's mentioned on four C sized batteries definitely sounds dubious. The screen technology at the time on this thing would have suffered in the same way that other handhelds did back then. And the idea of another handheld coming out when the Game Boy was current and doing so well, because this wasn't before the Game Boy. This wasn't when the Game Boy was out, as I understand it in the video. Um, for Nintendo, that was a bad idea. I think they made the right the right decision to push back on this. Dave's kind of shaking his head. He's not, not sure about that. I'm thinking back to the people that I saw on the train with a Game Boy. I think initially when it came out, it was gamers that had it people that played games all the time but i saw people who wouldn't you wouldn't expect to play games with the game boy because it was it was a different device than a gamers gamers thing so i i think there's possibly two different markets sure you would get gamers who would buy the game boy particularly if they're nintendo fans but playing tetris on the train on the way into work on that little thing is totally different than playing proper NES games. So I, I don't, I, I don't think it's impossible to say they could have coexisted. But if we just stick to that very early era where it's Game Boy versus Lynx, wouldn't you say the Lynx then was aimed at the the gamer in inverted yes. comment? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Didn't work out so well for that. <laughs> no, no, it didn't do so well. But it didn't have Nintendo behind it. True, true. It had a. Um, yeah, uh, a slowly dying Atari behind it, didn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, the final product idea as you go through this video, and I would urge, urge people to watch the video. It's, it's only 10 minutes long. It's a great little history lesson. Um, the final idea was to have a portable NES with a Game Boy adapter so you could play both NES and Game Boy games on it, and it had a TV out so it could be used like a regular console. Again, sounds like good fun, but again, clear why Nintendo would have pushed back on it. And the sad irony is something which Shelby touched on. This was produced, if this was produced in another region as a Famiclone, it would have just happened. There would have been nothing to stop it. But BDL tried to play by the rules and therefore they couldn't make this thing. Um, so we don't get to see it other than uh, in, the, um, in the video there. Dave. So I, I was never in the market for um, a handheld console myself. Um, never really appealed to me. I don't think this would have swung it. Um, and I think as well that Sega or Atari games were much more to my taste than Nintendo games. And that's without disparaging Nintendo games. I, I feel that Sega and Atari games are the ones I, I preferred most, most. But this device looks really interesting. And I think it's a big shame that Nintendo said no. I, I think this could have been a product that i don't think nintendo made much money selling the nes i think they sold the cartridges and if this sold more cartridges for them it would have helped and if people bought this instead of a nes and had it at home plugged it into the tv and then took it with them 
Is there any harm to Nintendo there? I think it's just too complex a marketing message for Nintendo, especially that final form. It's a handheld, it's a portable console that you can plug into your telly. It's it's also a Game Boy. It's 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 easy for us to understand, but from Nintendo's point of view, they like to keep their marketing very sharp and on point. And I think I think that's too much of a mixed message. But then look at the Switch. <laughs> Everyone will be screaming at their radio. <laughs> radio. Because people listen to a... us on the radio, on AM and FM. <laughs> <laughs> Nintendo had some weird marketing the with the forecast. NES. Uh, Nintendo had some weird marketing with the NES anyway, with the Famicom looking so radically different than the NES in North America. So I think that mm. they were really trying to hyper-market it for stuff. So I it, think it would totally make sense if they just wanted to keep it simple and not have like a cloud fit or crowded market with multiple things i think i'll concede that nintendo knew nintendo business better than i do and i i'm not even a console fan so maybe i should uh, stay in my box stay in my lane so have a look as neil said have a look at the video it's 10 minutes it's really interesting little video and i'd not heard of it before time now for our community question of the week now, I was away last week and I very much, well, the last two weeks, very much enjoyed listening to the last two shows. Well done, Dave and Chris, for uh, carrying the torch. Um, and the question you asked last week was, what are the, your honest thoughts about game piracy? Was it justified or were we all just making excuses? So I think it's an exercise in making ourselves feel good for our previous crimes. Is that right, Dave? There was a lot of that going on. I'm not... I. I don't want to let people off the hook for it. I think we need to appreciate the damage that we did to our micros through piracy, while at the same time recognising the industry was, in many ways, um, wrong in what they did. So I thought I'm a very balanced approach to it. We talked about, um, well, you listen, Neil, uh, so you know, we talked about coll possible collusion between magazines and game developers. In fact, it has to be collusion. They, co they couldn't have possibly honestly reviewed the game that way. These are the these are the people that are paying for the adverts in the magazine that you're also reviewing their games. So a little hint that we might be cancelling adverts if we, if we if we don't sell enough of these games, we won't be able to afford to pay for the adverts. Might encourage reviews in the right way. So I, I don't think the industry was right, and I think that the stuff about fast was vastly overstated to the point it was comical. But at the end of the day, piracy did a lot of harm to the industry, and I, I regret the amount of piracy I did. There were occasions where I decided to get rid of all my pirated games out of uh, almost a sense of guilt, but before long, I'd I'd built the collection up again. So, um, yeah, I never had that. Yeah, never, never would, never would I do that. No, Shelby, did you ever own a pirate game? Um, I will say there is some atonement going on behind me here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I knew you. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's an interesting thing because uh, a lot of people who would have participated in piracy you know a while ago you say used to uh would have been when you were younger when you couldn't have necessarily afforded all of the games so it wasn't always just you know oh i just don't want to pay for it it's maybe you couldn't have uh but also i find it interesting uh because we kind of still technically do it now <laughs> um when we preserve stuff and put it up on archive.org uh we just have the justification of preservation but I would also argue that potentially piracy did preservation back then as well, because uh, going back to older stuff for PC, 
Uh, I think all of the currently known copies of Alley Cat for PC are only the cracked copies that got yeah. distributed online. So it, at in some points, it was actually beneficial. But if it hadn't been pirated, maybe there would have been more commercial released versions that were known. So it's one of those things where we just don't know. But I, I think in some cases, maybe it's justified. Um, and... In some cases, not, but it's it's a very complicated thing. Yeah, we've had an enormous amount of responses, and not just short responses. People have written almost an essay in the responses, and they're all carefully measured. People been people have been thoughtful about it and careful not to just fly off the handle. So I would recommend having a look and reading through that. Neil, yeah, um, I, I'll try and do the the top answer from Antiques for Geeks. It was actually a 570 word answer. So I've chopped it up quite a lot. And I'm just going to read through some of the points here from that answer. Uh, he says, Dave hit, the, Dave hit the nail on the head. So um, you, you make of that as you will, if this is entirely well I'm thought. always right. I'm always right. <laughs> and it says, the whole piracy topic was far more nuanced than the picture FAST, that's the Federation Against Software Theft, and others liked to paint. Just going to stop on that point. Shelby, we had FAST over here, so we had adverts in our magazines saying, you know, you're going to go to prison if you're trading copied games, and they were done in like a comic book format. Did you have anything like that in your magazines? Uh, not really. I, I will admit I've never really been a magazine person, so I didn't okay. see stuff like that. But for me, it was uh, play, websites like Game Copy World, where you'd get a no CD yeah. crack for something that would just make it easy. And oddly, they're never actually still around. Game Copy World. I was stunned. I, I needed some no CDs to make multiplayer work a while back. And it was like, this place doesn't still exist. Oh my gosh, it does. There you go. Game Copy World for all your preservation needs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Gary goes on to say, take World Cup Carnival as an example. US Gold knew they had a turkey. It didn't matter how many trinkets were shoved in the box. It was a terrible game when it was released and terrible again when they gave it a new name. Yet US Gold had no compunction sticking it out at full price for kids and the market was kids to waste their money on, knowing that they'd be disappointed. Common factors include inattention to quality, that it was sold to kids, and that the kids had no leverage to get recompense other than to take their trade elsewhere. Playground piracy existed because the market didn't yet have the funds to sustain release after release of games at £9.99. There were no loaner copies of Operation Wolf at Blockbuster. There was no Netflix for Dynamite Ducks, for example. You bought carefully, you traded, and yes, you copied games on your sister's tape to tape because if you and a friend went out and bought a game each, you'd have two games when you got home. Was it right? No. Was it justified? No. Would I copy games today? No. Am I a mature adult who can now understand the impact of my actions on myself and others? Question mark. The lump on my head from banging it on the loft hatch <laughs> that I rested... <laughs> precariously because i just need to reach in so i don't need to secure it properly might disagree but truthfully yes um the winners turned out to be those who simply took the money and ran as an aside i'd make a note that fast would clump business software piracy in with everything else two very different situations yeah i read yeah. that for years microsoft didn't chase operating system piracy because well if you were using ms dos then it gave them market share for their productivity software 
At one point, I even knew of people who had a hooky copy of DOS and a licensed copy of MS Works. Make of that what you will. So there's a lot more to that answer if you want to go and read it on the subreddit, but yeah, an awful lot of things that are touched on. Yes, I remember the stories of Microsoft turning a blind eye to piracy, and it's pretty much where we are now with modern Windows. We're at the point where Microsoft pretty much give it away because it's the platform yeah. on which they can sell their yeah. cloud services and their subscriptions to Office 365 and everything else. Um, and it's kind of what it always was for many people. So it's um, fun, interesting we? note about that. Uh, WinWorld has a lot of copies of different versions of Windows backed up on it. And you can go and download all of those. But Microsoft prevents them from putting XP on there. They actually oh. have a little note on their website that they've tried to, and Microsoft said no, which is really weird to me because I think they just want to kill XP at this point. Just Yeah, because XP still buried. works fine. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. um, who wants to take the second answer from Taden X? Oh, go on. It's a shorter one, so I'll read out the whole thing. Back in the Amiga days, neither myself or my friends could afford new games. So outside of Christmas birthdays, piracy seemed almost mandatory. From the devs' publisher's point of view, this breaks down to, on the one hand, games not being purchased, and on the other, games being neither purchased or played. Now, since me and mine all grew a lot taller and got real jobs, we're all spending or our hard-end dosh on new installments and re-releases of titles we fell in love with back in our freeloading days. And from that point of view, copy that floppy and playground swapsies seem that a win-win for everybody involved. Mm, yeah. Can't argue yeah. with that. I mean... That's Amiga through and through, isn't it? <laughs> you bought it. Loads of people bought Amigas in the early nineties because they, they could get free games from the mates. That was yeah. the the reason to buy it rather than buy a rather than buy a Mega Drive. I did laugh when you and Chris were talking about this last week, and um, you were talking about crack trows. And yeah. uh, Chris assumed that you wouldn't remember any of the cracking groups. And I was listening to it go, you know, Cortex and, uh, you know, yeah, Fairlight and all the yeah. others. <laughs> and then the fact that Chris said that any crack games had messages about his mum at the start of them. So, it know. wasn't just Chrissy's mum that we're talking about. <laughs> Funny, because all my crack games just had messages about Chris's mum on them. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to listen to this, Chris. We don't mean this. Your mum's lovely. <laughs> Um, Shelby, uh, if your list is in the same order as us, I've got Richard Shears as the third answer. Do you see that one? Yes, I do. Do you want to read that one out for us? So, yeah. Uh, so Richard said, uh, pirate me? Nah. Although I didn't realize that X copy was actually a product you could buy <laughs> until a couple of years ago, uh, let alone that a box copy existed. Ooh, box copy, you say. Uh, I did have a copy of XCopy very early on, uh, later getting a dongle with the Cyclone copier that could easily make copies. Sounds like he was pretty serious in mm. the copying. Uh, reflecting back, I think that 75% of my games were backups. <laughs> However, uh, the more true representation was which ones I played. Uh, then I would say the tables were reversed and probably 70% of the games were legitimate. Mm. And I, I think that's a, a very fair point that you'd, hired a lot of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily fully play um and part of that would be that you may not have the investment in it you wouldn't really think to play it through you feel a little better about just like five minutes and then quit uh so i always had the view that if i liked a game enough i would buy it 
and that held up quite well thinking about it. Uh, yes, there were games that I did play, never purchased, but in all honesty, I probably wouldn't have bought it anyway, as I would not have the money to buy them back then. Definitely agree with that sentiment. Being a member of the Home Computer Club for both the CPC and Amiga era was an incentive. Also a member of the Special Reserve probably helped. As to cracking, I only did it for a challenge. I can't say that I was even worried about being the first to crack a game, although I'm sure the group that I might have allegedly known uh, were more <laughs> concerned with that side. I've, I've actually uh, seen some of Modern Vintage Gamers videos about the cracking scene for that kind of stuff, and it's it's very interesting how people would try to rush to be first for those things and then oh, yeah. spread it out. I That was not a scene that I was a part of. Uh, you mentioned the crack tros. Uh, I'm more familiar with Keygens having music yeah. stuff like that in the Keygen jukebox. That was the, the kind of the, awesome. Yeah, yeah. But a bit yeah, later, the, the Keygens were then the yeah. chip tunes on the Keygens were a throwback yeah. to the original crack yeah. tros, and it was always nice yeah. to sit to hear a familiar tune when you fire up a Keygen in Windows 98 <laughs> or something. <laughs> yes, going back to your Amiga days. So, uh, and we've also found in that answer that Richard Cheers is the source of those messages about Chris's mum. So that's a yeah. good revelation there. <laughs> as the cracker um dave do we have a question of the week for this week um maybe better if i read it out isn't it this question you you read it out because um yeah yeah okay this is probably Um, gonna no ulterior motives no ulterior motives nothing (laughs) nothing to gain here for neil this isn't lazy research at all go ahead neil abuse your role in the podcast abuse it well, Richard at the mill is creating a retro repair service and we need a name for it. So quite simply, if you were setting up a retro slash vintage computer repair service, and this could go beyond computers and be things like vinyl record players, amplifiers, anything like that. So vintage technology repair service, what would you call it? We need a catchy name that kind of says what it does on the tin, but is also memorable for marketing purposes. What would you call your retro repair service? That's it. No commission offered. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, as always, for listening. A huge thank you to Shelby for joining us this week. Um, Links to his channel. I'm sure you know who he is, but links to his channel are in the show notes. So go and uh, give him a big TWIR hug and subscribe to his channel. Thank you for listening, everyone, and take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.